1: Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast with Benji Nyson. Now, I pride myself on being honest with you all. I've tried to do that throughout the Lantern Rouge YouTube channel and now this podcast as well. If you've got that stage recorded, the Twitter France stage three, if you've recorded the full stage, you probably don't need to watch the whole thing. You could probably just listen to what we're going to say and just watch the highlights or the last one or two kilometers because honestly, it's one of those stages that broadcasters think about when they look at the audience metrics at the end of the year and they think about, because you've got to remember, race organisers are trying to get as many eyeballs on the screen for as long as possible. That's their goal. And they look at the numbers and it's proven just about that stages like that where a break goes and pretty much nothing happens for four hours is not particularly interesting for the viewer. Benji, what's your go-to activity? to do when you've got the cycling on in the background and it's not a particularly interesting stage.
0: Well, it kind of depends because at the moment when the races are on during the week, I have to work. So, racing is basically on behind the scenes for me. Nonetheless, when it comes to things that I usually do, I tend to edit one of my own videos when it comes to YouTube or such or respond to comments or just go ride my bike on Zwift at the moment while watching the race or something. Stuff like that, because I do intend to watch the race, even though it's a bit boring at certain points. But I tend to choose a primary activity at that same moment as well, just to make sure I don't go mental during that stage.
1: Yeah, I do the same thing. I sort of flick through comments, check Instagram or whatever. I don't even know. Maybe I'll go into a sort of dream state because uh, it's pretty late at night where I am. But anyway, onto the stage itself, from Nice to Sisteron, about 185 oh, sorry, 198 kilometers long. It actually did have a fair bit of climbing. Apparently, it had nearly 3,000 meters of climbing, but not any climbs that were particularly steep. That was an accumulation of climbing meters from sort of 8k's at 5%, then another climb at 5k's at 4%. Then another climb at 7k is at 5.4 percent, and I think the peloton was very happy at the start of this stage to let a breakaway go containing the uh king of the mountains contenders for the jersey for this stage Benoit Cosnefra for Asia du Mondial, and Perez for Cofidis, and also in that break was Jerome Cousin for Total Direct Energy. So three French riders they went into the break. I think Cousin just to show off the jersey a little bit and maybe just have some time to himself. But the other two riders, Perez and Cosnefoix, were battling it out for the KOM points. Did you mark down how that battle played out, Benji? And did you think they, were there are any glaring mistakes or weird things that actually happened in that race within the race?
0: I do have some notes when it comes to odd behavior by Cosnefoix. I've got the feeling that Arjizere did some weird stuff in the stage and already starting the moment that the breakaway fallen because Alvin Arsen was actually in that breakaway initially and so he spent the energy of getting in the breakaway, but then I think the team called him back because suddenly he stopped and just waited on the peloton, and that left Cosnefro in that three-man breakaway. When it comes to the K1 points, they fought for it, and eventually, I think Anthony Perez was ahead for a bit at the moment, that Cosnefro decided to do some weird mistakes, and it starts off simply by the fact that I think they miscalculated a bit, in the sense that he could still get a point or two at certain points, and then he let Cousin go for it, and just let Cousin take the KOM point, and Pérez and cousin didn't go for it anymore. It was odd behavior. What notable highlights did you see in that weird mess that I saw in that breakaway?
1: Well, just the fact that there were still KOM points on offer down the road, maybe one or two, and cousin just who who was then at the time, he lost the KOM jersey to Perez. And so he needed to gain those points back. And Cosnefrois just let Cousin go up the road. Um, seemingly no reason. I'm not sure he was, that Cosnefrois was in too much difficulty. And then that was compounded by the fact that maybe they went they went back to the peloton. And then sometimes sometime later, Nance Peters springs out of the peloton with Benoit Cosnerfroy on his <laughs> wheel. And they're chasing back. Jérôme Cousin, because they've maybe gone back, the DS has got on the little calculator and the and the road book, and looked a bit more closely and said, shit, we actually, there's a couple of points still left. <laughs> Get back up there. Um, they, they start doing so, and then we see them stop. And I thought, okay, have yeah, they just realised that Nuns Peters is not going to outpull Tim de Klerk, and this is a, all an effort in vain. But it turned out, they'd heard on the radio that Perez, he'd had a mechanical, since they were on a descent, he'd had a mechanical, fixed his tire or fixed his wheel or whatever, was now descending, and he got hit by the Cofidis team car or a team car at like 50 kilometers an hour and had to abandon. I think he had, what, at the time of reporting straight after the race, like a punctured lung or a clavicle, broken clavicle as well. So he was the virtual KOM leader, and he's now abandoned. So then Cosneau just sat up, because he's now the KOM leader almost by default. Do do you have any more insight into what happened with Perez?
0: Uh, There hasn't been any news recently since that accident, so they're still looking further on. He also had a broken rib cage or something at that moment, but it's all rumored injuries from Coffitis themselves on Twitter. They just said the possible injuries are the following. Nonetheless, it does look like it's a collarbone actually being broken and also the rip looks to be confirmed. The uh, punctured lung, not yet though. So yeah, I guess we'll find out more news on the social media platforms of Cofidis in the near future, hopefully.
1: But yeah, big shame for Perez. Would have been, you know, one of the highlights of his career, being able to stand on the podium with that polka dot jersey. But anyway, that was the end of the KOM battle and then the stage entered Another lull where Jérôme Cousin was allowed to have three minutes or three three to four minutes on the peloton. Tim de Klerk, a track door, was on the front for quick step, just riding tempo, trying to keep the brake, not even trying to keep the brake in check. I think Cousin was riding fairly easy at points, and they were definitely had no interest in bringing Cousin back before the last 15 kilometres. Fast forward. Let's fast forward to about twelve, twelve to fifteen kilometers to go. They reel in Cousin as expected. It was a. It looks like a uphill false flat drag to the finish. but The fact that it's over like fifteen to seventeen kilometers and it goes up maybe fifty, 50 meters of altitude. That's almost imperceptible for the riders and the speeds they're going. More importantly, apparently it was a headwind in the in the sprint in the last five hundred meters, and we'll get to that in a second. Quick step were on the front. I believe Alaphilippe, who'd been at the back of the peloton, uh, and I thought, okay, well, he's got the yellow jersey on. He's not going to contribute to the lead out for Sam Bennett. By the way, I should, before I get there, favourites for this stage were in the markets. Sam Bennett, actually $3.50, and Caleb Ewan was $5. So Sam Bennett, a clear first favourite over Ewan. Third favourite was Sagan, and then it was sort of a mixture of, you know, 20 to 1 for like your Christophs, uh, Case Bowl, Mads Pedersen, etc. Mads Pedersen, though, before the stage had said they were riding for Edward Turns in the sprint. That made very little sense to me, and they actually did do that. So I don't know why they did that, given that Mads Pedersen looked fantastic in the sprint in stage one. But anyway, NTT for Giacomo Nizzolo, who was also maybe a top five favorite, assembled on the right hand side. Once again, their lead out presented well early and then kind of evaporated at the end and he was left to fend for himself. CCC did much of the same thing and they've done that with it. many, many races since the uh, recommencement of races after lockdown. Though with five kilometres to go, CCC th- spear through the middle with three riders uh, or maybe two riders and then Trentin on, the th- on their wheel. They then lost the wheel or Trentin got separated from them um, with about 4 kilometers to go, and they were left with leaving him in a pretty bad position. They were blown up, and I didn't really get what they were doing. It would have made more sense to plonk him right on the wheel of either Ewan or Sam Bennett. But I think the wheel of Sam Bennett was what people were fighting for in this sprint. It got a little bit messy because Lotto Sudal... You know, not having John Degenklober and Philippe Gilbert, they were trying to keep Caleb in good position at the front of the race. But then his last lead-out man got left on the front with fifteen hundred meters to go. He sensibly thought, "Well, I'm not going to pull and leave Caleb as first in the wind under the flam rouge. That's a disaster." So he just stopped pulling. There was then a surge on the left-hand side of the road from the perspective of the helicopter with Sunweb having like four to five lead out men for Case Bowl, the young Dutch sprinter, except the roads were quite narrow. There was a lot of traffic furniture in the middle of the roads, but more importantly, they were quite narrow in this run in. And the first two Sunweb riders got through, but then I think Casper Askren or Bob Jungels, one of the quick step lead out men for Bennett, they just moved over a little bit as they were you know, justified in doing so and, and pinched. The Sunweb train, which caused a detachment of Case Bowl from the first two lead-out men. So he was out of position. So a lot of riders out of position. I think Sagan was surfing Sam Bennett's wheel. In the end, headwind sprint, Sagan opens up very early. And once again, I, I, I I have liked, I have to admit, I have liked the production of the sprints with the overhead shots. Um, which they didn't really go to today, actually. But generally, I've liked the production of the sprints and the finales a bit better this year. The only problem is it's so zoomed in, either on the fixed camera, which they used today, they used a fixed camera at ground level, and versus the helicopter shot. It's so zoomed in, isn't, we have no idea where the finish line is. And because I know this because I was doing the call, and maybe I'm just terrible at calling the, fi- the finales of sprints, but you know, Sagan was sprinting. It looked like he was coming close to the line, and then the camera zoomed back out again. He had obviously jumped way too early into the strong headwind with a slight uphill drag. Then Nitzolo was on his right-hand shoulder. He faded. Then it was Sam Bennett who came through, the favourite for the race, on the left-hand side as we looked at it front on, and he seemed to have very good separation from Sagan, who died in the sprint. And then Caleb Ewan, I'm not sure if you've all seen the Dan McClay sprint victory. It's quite famous where it's like a knife through butter where he slides through about six riders. This is that, but in the Tour de France stage three. Caleb Ewan came from so far back, from so far out of position, he wasn't even in the helicopter shot until the last 100 to 75 meters. He came through on the left-hand side of the b Hotels rider, which I think might have been Brian Cockard. He then veered to the right to the right-hand side of the barrier, past Peter Sagan, then back to the left, getting a slipstream the entire time off Sam Bennett, and then beat Sam Bennett pretty easily. didn't even need to throw his bike. It looked like he was going double their speed, like his sliders had been adjusted. Obviously, you know, he's got incredible aerodynamics, but the timing, the power from Ewan, the patience, the bravery to go against the barriers there. If Sagan had drifted over, it could have been dicey as well. An incredible win for Ewan. Is there anything else you saw on this sprint, Benji, that you'd like to call out?
0: In general, I do want to call out slightly that I thought Bennett's move was not really well done in the sense that he swerved to the left in the sprint, already kind of almost hitting Ewan there. And basically, with all these crashes we've seen in the last kilometers lately, it's very difficult to judge whether such an action is equable or not. and Yeah, it's very controversial it's a very controversial topic i often don't really know how to place my my perspective on this and today again it happened and then it's difficult to say that it's bad if nothing happens you know because it feels like they always judge it by the fact that someone crashes and then they act on it but now nobody crashed and it still looked like it could have been acted upon, in my honest opinion. Did you see something like, or you think I'm just mumbling about here?
1: I don't think it's, I disagree with you. I don't think it's controversial. I think it's clear. I'll read out the rule to you from the UCI rules. Sprints. Riders shall be strictly forbidden to deviate from the lane they selected when launching into the sprint and, in so doing, endang- endangering others. So it's a two-step test. I'm getting a bit all lawyer mode. I'm getting on my little lawyer high horse. a bit sad, isn't it? (laughs) The first test is, has Sam Bennett deviated from his lane, which I guess we always refer to it in cycling as his line. Has he deviated from his line whilst in the sprint? I think everyone can agree the answer is yes, right? He was on the barriers and deviated from his line. Okay, tick, he's done that. Has he endangered others? I think the answer is yes. And the evidence of that is Caleb Ewan had to take evasive action. And just because he was nimble in doing so doesn't mean that he wasn't endangered. A rider with not as good reactions might've gone down, or maybe there could have been a rider to the left of Caleb Ewan. And then there'd been a domino effect where Ewan moves to the left. He then bumps into that rider, etc. We've seen crashes like that in sprints before. They happen pretty frequently. So I think both of those tests are ticked, firm ticks in my opinion, the fact that no one crashed is irrelevant to me that's not part of the rule I and i think i think bennett should be uh disqualified do you do you think his deviation was deliberate
0: i believe his deviation is maybe a reflex but it doesn't matter what the reason is i agree that it should be punishable but the fact that it's so inconsistently punished makes it really controversial in Miles. that's what i meant before uh the conversation here started i believe that these actions should be acted upon, but it just doesn't happen
1: at all. If anything good could come out of the really, you know, sad Fabio Jacobson crash is that that has to be a line in the sand for everybody to say, okay, UCI or Commerce or whatever, you now have the support of the public. You know, if if the Jacobson crash hadn't happened, I can guarantee you there wouldn't be as many people on Twitter right now who are agreeing with us. A lot of people are agreeing with us. But I've just seen now the results are official. There's been no relegation of Sam Bennett. I think that's really disappointing. Um, and the cycle continues because a lot of people criticise the UCI for the Fabio Jacobson crash. I don't want to make this about the Fabio Jacobson thing too much, but I thought the criticism of the UCI went too far in respect of they didn't cause the crash. They had – there were issues – exacerbated the effects of the crash. But in my view, the cause of the crash was very clear. It was Dylan Honeweg and moving off his line. But then people were saying, well, they never get punished for it. So, you know, it's like it's not even a rule that's to be respected. So, unfortunately, Caleb Ewan, because he was nimble, because he's got good reactions, fortunately for him, he got the stage win and didn't crash. But that then meant that Sam Bennett was able to deviate off his line and hasn't been relegated. So I'm sure Sam Bennett's a nice guy, etc. I'm not criticizing his his character or anything. I'm like All the sprinters, or a lot of them, seem to do this. But I think the UCI should have made a statement here and just DSQ'd him from the stage. Um, it would have sent a really strong message, given that this is stage three of the Tour de France. What's the argument for not DSQing him?
0: I don't really have an argument for that, because I am indeed agreeing with you. The question now is, what punishment would you give them? I don't know what the rules are on that, but I would be thinking at a points uh, reduction and also move back to the end of the group or whatever the rules are there.
1: So it'd largely be symbolic for Bennett because he's not won the stage anyway. And, you know, he's probably not going to win the points jersey from Sagan anyway. So you could make a symbolic statement about it right now without taking away a stage win from someone, which is always going to be way more controversial
0: yeah that's very true and we saw how controversial this can be if you take a leaders race away with an Izola one years back but in the end stuff like this happens too much and it should not happen it's also comparable to the fact that plenty of people still ride next to the road instead of on the road and attacking like madrid van der poel did at the uh, european championships he uh, went on the footpath and attacked there we had Gilbert do that a few days earlier I think that was, I don't know which race it was. To To the Wallonie. Okay, yes, indeed. And like half the peloton road on on a footpath in To the Wallonie. Like, all these rules are so inconsistently used and it's an issue and it needs to be somehow handled better. Because like this, you will always have controversy around it and you'll always have people complaining that, well, it's unfair, it's so unfair, but there's no clear line in the sand right now and they should have that.
1: Okay, well that's enough about the rules. We've made it pretty clear where we stand on it. Let us know. You know, hit us up on Instagram or in the Discord or wherever, um, each on Instagram or in, in the comments on the YouTube video for this uh podcast. Do you agree with us or do you disagree? We'd be interested to hear what, what you all have to say. But Peters again goes into the green jersey. We've said that Caleb Ewan uh won the stage. We'll give you the top ten for the stage. Uh, just quickly, it was Ewan Bennett, Giacomo Nizzolo, Hugo Hofstetter for Israel start-up nation, quite a nice finish from him, fourth. Peter Sagan, ever-consistent fifth. Edward Turns, who the sprinter for Trek Segafredo, who Mads Pedersen led out today, came sixth. Case Bowl, a little bit disappointing in seventh, given the, the strength of his lead-out in the last two kilometres, although maybe they, they got shut out. Brian Cockard, quite nice, coming ninth. And Nicola Bonifacio, my man, coming in 10th for team total direct energy. With regard to the points jersey, the green jersey, Peter Sagan now takes that off Alexander Kristoff, moving into first two points ahead of Kristoff and five points ahead of Sam Bennett, 25 points ahead of Trentin, and obviously no changes on GC. Stage four. Have you had a look at this profile yet, Benji? I have.
0: I certainly have, and it's the first summit finish, and I'm looking forward to it. We've got a stage that it's basically... Quite flat with the start. We move slowly but surely towards the first climb today, which is the Col du Festre. It's not the largest climb, not the steepest one. 8.4 kilometers long, 5.2% average. Then we go down for a downhill, a descent of about two-ish kilometers is my guess, from the profile at least. Then we start with a small climb again. That is 2.2 kilometers at 4.8%. I think that's a, uh, is that a categorized one? It doesn't seem like it from this profile. Then we go slowly down again to the Côte de Côte, which is the next K1 point, fourth cat, that is 2.3 kilometers, 6.4%. Not a big climb either, hardly noticeable on the profile. Then we go towards the next one, which is 2.7 kilometers at 6.4, the Côte de L'Olanier. And that is basically the run-in for the final climb as well. We go downhill from that point, have a small K1 again, a third cat just before the final climb, go descend to that climb again, and that is basically Ossier Merlette. I unfortunately cannot read the percentages on the screen right now because they've literally written the name OCM Allet onto it. But I think it's 8%? No, it can't be. That's
1: not No, it's 6%. Steep. It's 10 kilometers or so at 6%. It's not that steep, I don't think. I'm not sure who we said in the preview was our pick for the stage. I'm not sure if we said a breakaway would go and stay away or what the GC riders or GC teams will have in mind for the day. I feel like getting two bites at the cherry with our predictions now that we do, we do a little <laughs> preview of the stage uh, the day before. I kind of like Carapaz in this stage. I might have mentioned that before, but I think Julian Alaphilippe will be re- definitely retaining the yellow jersey and could be on for another stage win, depending on what the uh, Koenig-Quickstep want to do. I'd assume they would be lining up um, for this stage and getting on the front and controlling the breakaway like they did today. And depending on how tired Alaphilippe is, I think he could be, He'll definitely be up there again who do you who do you pick and do you remember who we did pick
0: i think i called a breakaway on the stage um the reason for that was that i didn't see an incentive towards jumbo and such basing but i'm slowly but surely getting scared when it comes to all the COVID rumors in the area that the tour de france might potentially end earlier which i hope it doesn't but if that is the case teams are hearing those arguments as well And they might also be like, well, we should try and win this stage anyway, just in case it ends early, that we get something out of this. Then again, Jumbo was clear in what they said that if they cancel the race early, they won't see it as a real Tour de France. So they wouldn't recognize the winner as a real Tour de France winner. So, in general, that would mean that they also wouldn't plan to go earlier just because of that, I would expect. Nonetheless, I think it's going to be a breakaway. I believe that. I don't have an incentive in GC riders to really push it on this one, and it is that kind of climb that climbers that don't necessarily are the best climbers, but are good rulers throughout the stage, like Thomas and such, can do well at. I believe that a breakaway will win this day. I do believe that Leap will stay in yellow, although it might be troublesome because he doesn't have too much seconds on the peloton. Then again... Maybe the guys that are in the breakaway will already have lost time already. I don't see Alaphilippe losing yellow today.
1: No, I don't either. And I actually, I don't think it'll be a break. I think it'll be Alaphilippe again going for the stage win. I think he's in fine form. Um, People are saying he's not as good as last year, but I think what more do you want from him after yesterday's stage? I think he's in, in fine form. But anyway, that's the quick preview of tomorrow's stage. I think it'll certainly be much more exciting and more tactics at play uh, and the GC element as well will be involved tomorrow. A quick note about, I mean, a quick little roast, actually, of Groupama FDJ. We aren't roasting them. Apparently, they got roasted by Jesper Sturven, or Sturven sorry, in the in the media. Apparently, there is like a, instead of a patron, like a leader of the peloton now, there's like a big WhatsApp <laughs> group chat with like the senior riders from a lot of the teams, almost all, almost all of the teams, and it also includes the head of the CPA, Gianni Buno, And apparently, in that group chat, that's where they sort of decide or agree okay, we're going to neutralize X location, or that they agree things on safety and it's to coordinate the peloton response to safety issues um, rather than one rider themselves just taking it upon themselves like Cancellara kind of tried to do. Anyway, after stage one, when Group Armour FTJ. A few of their riders crashed, obviously, including Thibaut Pino went down, it was a little bit sore. Their representatives went to that group chat and said, We need to neutralize, or can we neutralize the entirety of stage two and ride the whole thing at 30 kilometers per hour? Not regardless of whether the stage is dangerous or not, as just because, just because. And the group chat promptly told them. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no chance and Jesper Stoyan was in the media I think it was on Cycling News or something saying yeah really disappointed that people tried to use the, use this sort of what we're doing in this group to for their own personal gain and you know just slow it down because obviously Thibaut Pino had a bad day I'm not sure it came from Pino directly but man why FTJ doing why are they overreacting so much yeah. to something like that How did you view that?
0: Yeah, I've got the same feeling because like, I feel if teams work together to have a good cause regarding the safety, they want to centralize the decisions that they make in the peloton. And obviously, there are going to be people that are acting in self-interest, but this is just a bit over the top to do it the day after it's created, in my honest opinion. And it's kind of a bit of an insult to the concept that they are doing it, and I think also Oliver nason also commented on it that it was not really the best move by group Groupama. So it's clear that it's an overall general thought that it wasn't a good idea to do it.
1: And on that safety note, this has probably been a, there's been a lot of safety talk on this podcast already. But Brussels Cycling Classic, we'll just wrap up that race as well in case you you might have missed it. It was a it's a one pro race. Obviously, it's in Brussels, starts and finishes in Brussels. And it was won by Tim Merlier, the Belgian national champion, running for alpecin Phoenix. You might know him from, you know, running with Mathieu Vanderpol, but he's a very good sprinter in his own right. He actually came third in the first stage of the Tour de Wallonie, uh, behind Calibou and Sam Bennett, actually. So that was last month. He was obviously showing good sprinting form. And Natsubuani, sorry, I should tell you what, what this sort of race is. It's It's a... Race that's got lots of punchy little climbs. It was about 200 kilometres long. Um, Just a standard, one-day classic sort of race in Northern Europe, raining heavily, something I just wouldn't want to ride in. Anyway, Nasser Buani, Jasper Philipson was there, Pascal Ackerman was there as well, I think, Florian Seneschal. So quite a strong field. But Buani got a very, very good lead out from Dan McClay, who's now got two mentions in this podcast somehow, and got dropped off with about 180, you know, maybe 200 to go, maybe a little bit early. And Tim Merlier came off Buani's wheel early and just dusted him off in the sprint. Boulogne didn't have the kick I expected him to. Davide Barbarini was there, I think, as well, coming in third position for quick-step. He won, I think, stage four or five in the Tour de bologna an improving young sprinter for quick-step. Definitely better than Alvaro Hodge.
0: I think it was uh second, and third, the other way around. Uh, I think Buhani came third and Ballerini second because Ballerini just swinged around him in the last second.
1: Yeah, that makes sense because yeah, Buhani just lost all his momentum because he just stops. He only sprinted properly for about five or five seconds, if that. But the real noteworthy thing about this this race was the fact that Jim Merlier, speaking of deviations, he's moved just swung. From the right-hand side of the road, as we look at it from the overhead helicopter shot, to the left, and it looks like he completely cleans up Nassibuani. And this is one of those things where the first replay, things can be so deceiving unless you've seen all the angles and slowed it down and seen what's happened. What actually happened was, these guys are sprinting at over 60, 65 kilometres an hour. The road is saturated. There is paint. On the road, there's a middle painted line, and the race organisers had set up this finish where at the finish line, it was a a straight finish, but at the finish line, the road started to curve fairly sharply to the left, and the combination of paint and a wet road meant that Merlier, who had sprinted on the right-hand side, as we look at it from the overhead shot, he had to start turning because he saw, oh my God, he saw the direction of the painted line and where it was going. If I don't start turning now, about 30 metres before the finish line, I'm going to go straight into these barriers on the right-hand side or slide out. He started moving over to the left-hand side, and it looked like he was cutting across Bouani's line, which he sort of was. He didn't actually touch Nasser Bouani. also then tried to correct, but later than Merlier, and his slight correction and adjustment just washed out his front wheel. He took Ballerini with him. They went crashing into the barriers on the right-hand side of the road. Merlier escaped going down, but he also had to unclip his pedal. Um, I'm not sure if he's a cyclocross rider as well. I think he he probably is. Um, And he managed to stay upright. Is that finish even legal, Benji? Did you have anyone to blame out of those riders? I held those riders blameless, actually, in that sprint and just blamed the race. But how did you see that finish? Firstly...
0: I expected at the first time I watched it that was Merlier because the first time you see it you're like oh my god it just crosses the road and just clips Buhani out of the way but then we indeed saw that the corner was just behind the finish line which is just pretty much dumb to place it there as an organizer in my honest opinion and that means that Merlier pretty much had to change his lane to do that obviously he necessarily broke the rule of deviating your line, but he had to do it, otherwise you basically ride right into the barrier. So I also believe that this is an organizer's mistake, genuinely, because it's a bit weird that you don't expect a potential sprint to happen there. And you have to realize that when a sprint is gonna happen there, that obviously a sprinter is gonna have to do something to get out of that mess after the finish line. You can't just break in 10 meters and expect to stand still. And definitely not with the weather they had with the rain and such. And I believe that there is indeed a rule regarding that, but I'm not sure whether it stops at the finish line or whether the part after the finish line also counts for the rule. So I can't say if the rule applies to this, but I know that it's not allowed to have a bend in the sprint, according to UCI rules a proper bend at least. I don't know what the rules are, what the calculations are in the sense that it needs to be this kind of bend or something. But I know that there's a rule regarding that. I don't know if it ends at the finish line. Because, yeah, if this is allowed, then that's also an issue in my honest opinion. Because this shouldn't be allowed.
1: Only in cycling. Imagine if there was, if the IAAF, if they were doing 100 meter races, if they had a brick wall, or some sort of you know wall or barrier five meters after the finish line, and the athletes just had to stop so after they were sprinting. You know, it's that's an extreme example, but it's kind of the same. Like you're setting these riders up to crash. Like who is the person approving this uh, this course design? I've never ridden in a World Tour race or a professional bike race, but I can tell you that it rains a lot in Belgium, and it's probably not a good idea to have a finish where the a bend starts at the finish line. But anyway, if the safety things go on, um, it seems to be an endemic problem rather than just a one-off occurrence. But yeah, that was a Brussels cycling classic. Merlier looking in very good form to help Matthew van der Poel in the later classics this season. And the last thing on the agenda today was the Michael Matthews move from Sunweb to Mitch and Scott. That got announced yesterday. A lot of people have asked for my opinion on it maybe thinking I have some sort of insight on it because I spoke to Matthews a couple of weeks ago. I don't. I think this is a pretty good move for Michael Matthews, going back to a team he really enjoyed writing for. He seems pretty happy about it from what he said on, on social media. Sunweb obviously have this sort of their press statement or media release that I encourage you to, re- to read it because it's so strange. They talk about like the collective and... I don't know. It's like socialist cycling, where it's not actually good to be ambitious. Like Dumoulin, you know. Dumoulin said to them, "I want you to support me because I want to win the Tour de France and be be your main GC guy." And they're like, uh, "It's a bit ambitious, actually, Tom. I don't think this is the place for you." And he went to <laughs> Yama Visma. Michael Matthews says the same thing from a classics perspective. He said, "Hey guys, I'm you know whatever you think about Michael Matthews, he is capable of winning Milan San Remo." Like, he is capable of winning it if things went right on his day. He is that caliber of rider. In my opinion, maybe I'm biased. But he said to them, I want your full support for races like that um, and be the team leader. And they said, no, nah, that's not how this is going to work. We're riding with this sort of multi-pronged approach with maybe Hershey and Benoit, etc." Which uh, there's, there's an argument for that as well. You know, Hershey looked really good in stage two of the Tour de France. Uh, they got other talented riders as well. No, I agree with that. But I agree with Matthews leaving if they're not going to give him leadership. He's only got, you know, probably a certain amount of years left in the peak of his powers, especially as a a sort of sprinter, a sprinter-heavy classics guy. What did you think of the move, Benji? Were you surprised? And were you surprised it was Mitchell and Scott that he went to?
0: I wasn't really surprised about the move necessarily after what they basically... Did to him, in my honest opinion. Nonetheless, regarding that, I am always surprised about the fact that they seem to be repetitively breaking contracts at Sunweb, and there has to be something more behind the scenes, like you were referring to, that is directly influencing the mood of these riders regarding their contract. Because, like, basically, at this point, you can predict any Sunweb rider to leave within three years just before their contract runs out. And it's kind of crazy because you don't see that often in other teams, but we've had Bar Gil at Sunweb. Obviously, that was a bit of a different case because if I recall correctly, he was thrown out of the Velta first and then they became very unhappy together. And we also had, I think, well, Matris, of course, but also Dumoulin. And I recall Zico Whitens as well, but I'm not 100% sure that's also a contract case. But I think that he was earlier left out of his contract and it's becoming repetitive it's becoming kind of recurring in the same theme and yeah that does show that there's a bigger issue at hand in sunweb themselves nonetheless you do see other riders just extend their contracts like they to 2022 when it comes to mitchelton i thought firstly that that would be a good team that he went to the moment that the news of him leaving sunweb came to my ears but then i was like no nah, he he left there and I swear they didn't really have a good relationship when he's left. And I honestly don't remember what happened there. The moment daddy left Mitchelton, I think it was Orica back then as well. Maybe you remember that?
1: Oh, I think, I think the bad breakup was more when I think with Caleb Ewan, he went to Sunweb and he went to past his new, maybe for the money, but certainly because I don't think Mitchelton are the strongest team in the world to support his ambitions either. Um, I think, you know, Daryl Limpy's leaving, so a guy that could, could have helped him in the sort of races that Matthews is strong in. He's going to Israel Startup Nation. Will Dion Smith be tasked next year at Milano Sanremo with riding 100% for Michael Matthews? You know, Dion Smith came came sixth this year, so how's that going to play out? Yeah, I'm not sure it's the strongest team, but then he could have gone to... You know, a team like Ajdual Le Mondial maybe not got paid as much, and then there'd be also leadership battles, but more of an opportunity for the team to win with Greg Van Avermaet and Oliver Nyssen. But I don't know. I haven't really put too much thought into how it's going to play out and looked at the team list next year for Mitchelton Scott. But the Sunweb philosophy just seems to be a little bit strange to me. What happens when Mark Kershi inevitably and justifiably says, hey, I'm like a top five, top seven? puncher in the world right now in three or four years, let's say, you need to ride 100% for me in Liège-Bastogne-Liège or Classica-San Sebastian or or wherever, even in the tour stage. And are going to say no? Because that doesn't really make sense. And to your point about Teixe Note re-signing, well, I don't think Teixe Note's a rider that is demanding that the team rides for him as 100% leader necessarily. I think he's happy that they just let him do his thing, get into breaks, etc. cetera, uh, where it's, it's different for a rider like Michael Matthews who needs more of that sort of direct team support. But thanks, as always, for listening to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. If you're watching on YouTube, be sure to include a comment down below or like the video or subscribe to the channel. And if you're listening on a podcast player, which is about which is the majority of you, uh, consider leaving a rating, not even a review, just a rating on your podcast player. That, that helps out loads as well. We're somehow in the charts. In all the relevant countries which is crazy for just a young australian and belgian just talking smack about cycling every day but we're both just really enjoying it so far and the interactions with you all and you all seem to be enjoying it as well and we our rapport i think seems to be pretty good so that's me basically patting ourselves on the back benji did you have anything else to say before we sign off i really appreciate the feedback that we've been having these last few days the good feedback the constructive feedback
0: we're very much open to being corrected and we try to do so as well if we see that we said something wrong. On YouTube, there's often a pinned comment that says here are some st- things that basically changed since we did the podcast, some news that broke out or something. And we try to uh, see your perspective of the argument as well once you post a comment or anything because if you are open to other arguments, you seem to have a better understanding afterwards for yourself as well. So. That's at least my motto in life. And I've got the feeling that this podcast is trying to perform that as well. I very much appreciate all the support. And yeah, that's roughly about it for today. Hope you enjoyed it, guys. Ciao.